0: May we affirm our faith with joy and a willing spirit as we hear today's scripture. Our reading is from Esther chapter four, verses one through four and 13 and 14. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went through the city wailing with loud and bitter cries. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one might enter the king's lake clothed with sackcloth. In every province wherever the king's command and his decree came, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and most of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews, for if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. This is God's word to God's people.
1: Be to God.
2: Today is the last day in our sermon series, flawed yet faithful. Over the last eight weeks, nine weeks, long time over the summer, we've been looking at characters from the Bible who remind us that God does amazing work through people that are flawed, who are morally compromised, but God can still use them and maybe even still use us to bring about the kingdom. And for that, we give thanks. Last week, no one questioned the flaw of the individual that we preached about. This week, you may be sitting there listening to the scripture that was just read and going, what exactly was her flaw? And I did that kind of on purpose because we're all on a continuum. Some of us have big mistakes in our past. Some of us have small mistakes. Some of us have sins of our family, but not necessarily things that we've done ourselves. And we're trying to figure out how to negotiate the world through all of those realities. When I started youth ministry back in 1999, I remember one of my youth saying to me, Rachel, some sins are sinnier than others. (laughs) And that really impacted me because I think that that's the way that most of the time we go through life. We judge someone by the extent of their sin. But the reality is is that sin is anything that separates us from God. It could be big, but it could be small as well. And God looks at all sin as something that separates us and God's just looking for the opportunity to be reunited with us. So regardless of the size of our sin, God wants to work on us and through us and in us so that we can experience transformation and grace and so that we can be transformation and grace for others when we live out God's message and call in our lives. So how does Esther tie into this story? Esther is a book of the Bible. It's only 10 chapters long, so you can probably go and research it. I'm not asking you to read 25 or 50 chapters like I did at the beginning of the sermon series. Um, but it, it has, it's very rich. Interestingly, the story doesn't actually start with us hearing anything about Esther. It starts giving us the contextual information. Esther and her uncle Mordecai, who we heard about in the scripture, live in a land called Susa, which is part of Babylon, and they are a group of people that a group of Jews that live in that land a hundred years after the exile has ended. Some people have chosen to go back to their homeland, and some people have chosen to remain in the land where they had established themselves. Esther and Mordecai and the people of Israel in that place are those people who chose to establish themselves in the community in which they, they had been sent to during the exile. Now, there's a king in this land that loves to throw ex- extravagant, lavish parties. He loves to issue decrees And he loves to listen to people in his life, for good or for bad. And when I say he loves to throw parties, I'm not just talking a couple hours. I'm not just talking a couple days. I'm not just talking a couple weeks. The party that starts out the story is 187 days long. I don't know if I can party that long, I'll be honest with you. And so and the way that the parties work back then is, is that all the men are in one party and all the women are in another party. And at about the 187th day, uh, being a great host and welcoming people, he goes, "Have I told you how beautiful my wife is?" That's like three no, that's like almost five months. I was like, "Has he seen his wife in those five months?" I don't know. But he's like, "Have I told you how beautiful my wife is?" Let me show you how beautiful she is. And he sends a message over to his wife and says, Dear, come over to this party. I want to introduce you to the people gathered here. And she sends back an unceremonious no. We don't know why. It could be that she's been hosting people for 187 days herself, and she's like, I'm tired. I can't go entertain another group of people. It could be that something else is going on in her life. But she says no. The king is more than a little disgruntled and gets together with his advisors and said, Guys, let's huddle up. Let's figure out what to do. How should we respond to this? And their decision is, we're going to take away her title of queen, and we're going to make sure that everybody in the land knows that women are supposed to respect their husbands. So a decree is written down in the books. As soon as his anger has disappeared, he's like, I'm lonely. What should I do about this? Hey, advisors, come let's huddle up. So they huddle up and they confer and they decide, we'll hold a beauty pageant. That's not actually what they call it, but that's what I'm gonna call it. We're gonna gather all of the beautiful women from the land and we're gonna get them together and we're gonna do all the purification rights that we need to. And you, king, will have the opportunity to choose the most beautiful to be your next bride. This is where we meet Esther and her uncle, Mordecai. Mordecai goes, Honey, you will be better off going and living as one of those beautiful women who's being, being judged for their beauty and determining if you can be the queen, than you are living with me. But for you to do that, I have a caveat. You need to not tell the king that you're Jewish. You need to pretend that you are one of the citizens of this land without a divine heritage, and you need to keep that under wraps. And Esther goes, and she does it, does all of the things that are required to do. And when the beauty pageant is ready to be performed, and it's Esther's turn to be paraded in front of the the judge, you like that, the king, um, he is immediately enraptured with her. He says, this is the one that needs to be the queen. Let's set her aside in her own special space where she gets even extra benefits and things to take care of her so that she can be ready. When I say, honey, come come entertain me. Come be a part of my party. Come, she's going to be ready because I'm going to give her all the resources that she needs to do that. Just about the time that Esther is becoming queen, Mordecai, who this whole time has been kind of hanging out at the palace gates, waiting to find out what's going on with his niece and to make sure that she's okay and that that tragedy hasn't befallen her, he's listening to the conversations that are going on around him. And he hears two of the king's guards plotting to assassinate the king. And he sends message through all of the servants in the castle to Esther and says, Honey, you need to warn the king. And so the king gets this message. They thwart the assassination attempt, and the king has his scribes write down in the royal scrolls the work that Mordecai did to save his life. You have to hold on to that and put that in your back pocket, okay? So time continues. The king gets a new trusted advisor. His name is Haman. I kind of equate him to Jafar in Aladdin. So you guys have a visual concept in your head. Um, And he's not from the Babylonian people either. And I I kind of feel like he got a little high and mighty because he's like, I've got this position of power even though I'm not from amongst the people. And he let it go to his head. And he got the king to write a decree that said, everyone, whenever they encounter Haman, has to bow down and pay homage to him. Now, Mordecai, being a good Jewish man, said, no, I'm not doing that. The only person that I bow down to is my God. You are not my God, so I will not bow down to you. This made Haman angry, very, very angry. And he goes, what sort of thing can I get the king to write? What can I get him to decree? Hey guys, can you tell me a little bit more about this man? Well, you know he's Jewish, right? I got it. I'll get the king to write something about all of the Jews. I'll get them him to, to pass a decree that on a specific day that will be determined as we cast the dice, or we cast lots, on that day, we'll be able to assassinate all of the Jewish people. This is where the scripture that we read this morning comes in. Mordecai heard about this, heard that this decree had been written, and he starts lamenting. Lamenting in a very public and visible way so that other Jews can know that something major is going on, and others join him in this journey, uh, join him in this sense of protest and prayer and fasting and saying, God, where are you? Esther catches word of this, but she doesn't know why her uncle is doing this, so she tries to offer him, offer him support and solace and clean clothes, and he's like, I'm having none of that. I need you to do something, honey. I need you to talk to your husband. And Esther's like, but, 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 I can't. And the reason that she says that she can't is because in one of those decrees, written at some point, It has been said that the queen cannot go before the king unless she is summoned. So she's not sure how she can go forward in such a way that she will not be punished or penalized by coming and speaking to him. And her uncle says to her, Honey, if you don't go before the king, I promise you that salvation will come, but I won't promise you that our family will be saved in this situation. I won't promise you that we will make it out alive, and I can't even guarantee that you'll make it out alive because at some point he's going to find out that you're Jewish. And if he finds out from someone other than you, that's going to be a really bad thing. Maybe God has put you in this place of privilege right here and now for such a time as this so that you will be in the right place to bring about the change that is needed in our world, in our community, in our home. Esther takes his words to heart and says, I am going to fast and pray for three days. Get anybody from our community, any Jew in our kingdom, to get together and do the same so that we are in conversation with God. And she does this three-day fast and prayer and at the end of the three days, she, she rises from this time and says, I have a plan. She goes forward and sends a message to the king through her servant, saying, I'd really like to throw a party for you and Haman. It's just going to be the three of us. Can you come on over to my place when you have a chance? We'd, I'd love to have you over here. So they come on over to the party, and they have a fabulous time. The king says, Honey, is there anything that you want to talk about? She goes, well, there's something I want to talk about, but I'd really appreciate it if you'd come to another party tomorrow. And they're like, all right, okay. Maybe it was two days. Another party in a couple of days. Um, They're like, okay, we can do that. So they go on their way. That night, the king is having issues sleeping. So what better way to fall asleep than to have your royal scribe read to you from the the royal documents of all that has transpired? And conveniently for... Mordecai, the story that is read to him that night, is the story of Mordecai thwarting the assassination attempt. And he looks at his scribes and he says, did I do anything for Mordecai? And his royal advisors actually say, no, all you did is have us write it down in the book. I should do something about that. I'll talk to Haman tomorrow and see what he thinks. So he calls Haman into his office the next day and says, So I have this person who has done a great service to me, who has saved my life in an amazing way. What do you advise that I do to give thanks to this individual? And Haman, thinking that the king's talking about himself, goes, you should put a royal robe on this individual and put them on a horse and parade them around town so that everyone could give them accolades. And the king says, that's a really great idea. Make it so. And the person that I'm talking about is Mordecai. And Haman's like, what? (laughs) But he does it begrudgingly and then goes home and talks to his wife and his friends about it. And he goes, do you know what I had to do today? What what should I do about it? And his friends go, well, make a public spectacle out of Mordecai. Do something. To, to make his, his death even more severe than the rest of the Jews that's coming up in just a couple of days. And he goes, good idea. The next day, the party happens with Esther and the king and Mordecai, and they're, they're having their party, and the king again goes, honey, is there something you need to tell me? Well, yes, there is, honey. I need to tell you, first of all, I'm Jewish. Okay. All right, well, I'll, I'll take that into consideration. But it sounds like there's another part of that. Well, yes, see, you issued a decree a few weeks ago that said that on, a, on this particular day, that's coming up in just a few days, that all of the Jews can be killed by people in our community. And he goes, I wrote that decree? Well, yes. Well, who encouraged me to do that? It was Haman. The king is quite upset by this this realization and the fact that, that the love of his life and the person that he's so enamored with is possibly threatened in all of this, that he deposes of Haman, takes away his title, takes away his responsibility, takes away his privileges, and then they go back and consult the scrolls and what the decrees say, and somewhere along the line there's a decree that says, you can't reverse any of the decrees that have been written in the past. But, Mordecai, you and Esther can write a decree to kind of superimpose on top of the first decree and see if we can can thwart the original decree. So Mordecai and Esther write a decree that says any Jew that's being attacked on this day that's allowed, they are allowed to defend themselves. And they're allowed to go forth and harm anyone who is threatened to harm them. I'm not so happy about that part, but we go back to that whole morally bankrupt thing, and sometimes we make bad decisions, and I don't really like that decision that they made, but it's part of the biblical story, so I'm not going to hide it from you. Um, So they are able to protect themselves and save their lives. This is a, a story about opportunity, a story about finding the right place and the right time a story about listening to what is going on in the community and how we might be moved to act. I don't know how many of you know this, but the last four days I've spent down in San Diego at a place called the School of Congregational Development. There's a lot of information that I've learned and and gleaned over the last few days that it would take a long time to unpack, and I'm not going to do that but I am going to tell you two little bits of wisdom or insight that I received that I feel pertain to this sermon. One of them was shared by our director of communications here in our annual conference. His name is James Kang. And he, he was talking about, as people of faith and as churches, we need to look, look not just at ourselves. He talked about the Wesleyan tradition about asking, how is it with your soul? And encouraged us not to just ask, how is it with Debbie's soul? And how is it with Skip's soul? And how is it with Karen's soul? But how is it with the collective soul of the whole group? And not just the collective soul of the whole group in this place, but the collective soul of Westlake Village. How is it with our soul? what are we doing to bring about the kingdom of God? Because if my soul is great and hunky-dory, but the soul of someone sitting down the street is not doing so well, then we are not bringing about the kingdom of God. And then I had the great opportunity to hear um, Father Gregory Boyle speak. For those of you who don't know who he is, he is the founder of Homeboy Industries. He's a uh, priest who was assigned to Boyle Heights, which is very much is a community that has been impacted by drugs, and gangs, and violence. And he's spent the last several decades working to bring about a ministry that helps people get out of that dynamic and establish a new dynamic, to, to take away the tattoos that signify them as gang members, to give them the job skills that they need so that they can start having productive, vital, Parts of their life and for their family, and at a certain point in the training and in the development, when they feel comfortable with it, and um, he's called G by all of the men who are, are all of the people who are part of the program. So whenever I talk about G, I'm talking about uh, Gregory Boyle, um, Father Gregory Boyle. Um, they get to go with G to speaking engagements, and there was one point that. Two, two of the uh, products of the program, two of the, two individuals, two, men's, two men who were a part of the program got to go with G to a speaking engagement, and they both shared their story, and then Father Boyle told a little bit about his experience, and then there was a question-and-answer period. During the question-and-answer period, a woman who probably looks very much like me walked up to the microphone with tears in her eyes, and said, I have nothing in my experience that can help me to relate to the experience that you have had. I feel so guilty about that, and I feel so sorry for the experience that you've had. The gentleman stood there for a couple minutes, and then one of the men who shared his story said, I'm not going to feel bad if I win the lottery. I'm going to feel bad if I misspend my winnings. I thought that was so profound. We don't need to, be feel, need to feel guilty about our place or position in life. We need to consider how we're using that place and position to serve others, to bring about the kingdom of God. Because if what we're doing is allowing it to be well with my soul, but no one else's soul, we're not doing what God has called us to do. And hopefully we have people in our lives just like Mordecai that says, no, I think you need to go back to the drawing board. Take some time in prayer because I think God's preparing you for just such a time as this. Amen?